0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. This is Dan Snow. Still buzzing, still excited. I don't know if you heard yesterday's episode of the podcast, but I was on the riverbanks of the Thames in the shadow Literally in the shadow of London Bridge One of many bridges to span the Thames That exact spot stretching all the way back to the Romans Who first put a bridge across the Thames It was as far down river as they could still bridge And that became the reason for the existence of London uh, And we found a coin Not just any coin, we found a George II coin from 1752 Now as everybody knows, the 1750s was the greatest and best decade and most interesting decade, I should say, in British history, uh, and so it was a great privilege to find. It's very serendipitous. I say I found that coin. That's of course grotesque. The brilliant Lara Makelum, the famous London mudlarker, found the coin, but I was present. I was there, so some of my juju made that coin surface just when it did. Uh, anyway, this podcast has got nothing to do with uh, any of that stuff. You'll be hearing all that in detail on the podcast coming soon, and on the History Hit channel. Historyhit.tv, new digital history channel. Please go and check it out. You use the code POD6, it's exclusive to podcast listeners. You get six weeks for free of charge. So go and go and sign up, please. You'll also be able to watch this interview that's coming up on this podcast. Uh, on the pod today, we have a remarkable couple of people. We have Naomi Lopian and we have Derek Neiman. Uh, Derek got an unpleasant surprise a few years ago when he discovered that his grandfather was an indicted war criminal. Partially responsible for the deaths of tens, if not hundreds of thousands, of people during the Holocaust. He wrote a book about that experience. That brought him together with Nomi Lopian because she also published a book. She wrote up the experience, the diaries of her father, Ernst, who was a Jew caught up in the Holocaust. Both his siblings perished in Auschwitz. Only one of his sisters survived, and he was lucky enough to do so as well. The two of them have now been travelling around the country, around the world, talking about what they have both learned from their journeys and what they think the rest of us can learn from the experience of their grandfather and their father. One a Nazi, the other a victim. It was a pretty profound podcast to record this one, very emotional. So I hope you find it as interesting as I did. And remember, the interview will be going up on HistoryHit.tv along with lots of other uh, Holocaust-related material for this big anniversary. In the meantime, enjoy. Thank you guys so much for for coming on the show. Let's talk to you, What is Talk to you about your relationship, your connection with the Holocaust.
2: My connection with the Holocaust is very raw and very direct. Both my parents were children of the Holocaust. My mum, at the age of 10 was questioned at gunpoint by the Gestapo, a gun literally to her head asking is she Jewish, is she Jewish. She was imprisoned there um, in Anmas in France and she was um, looked after by a young group leader aged 22 who looked after my mother and a group of 32 children and she was saved by the Lord Mayor of Anmas and was liberated into Geneva. My father was 17 in 1939 and was taken into seven concentration camps over four and a half years at the age of 19 in 1941 um, in Poland and then into Germany and was liberated near Munich on the 30th of April um, 1945 by the Americans. How
1: did he survive that experience?
2: Well, he's written it all in in the long night and he wrote it very soon after the war so it's a very frank, fresh, immediate account Um, and remarkably he studied after the war medicine and dentistry and devoted himself to helping people in the community and founded the Association of Persecutees and erected a memorial in Dachau and always was looking out and after humanity and continued, above all remarkably, his belief in humanity.
3: Derek, what about you? Well, I discovered relatively recently that the, the grandfather, I've been told, was a simple Penpusher was actually an SS captain, a Holocaust perpetrator, and his job was to go around the likes of Auschwitz, Dachau, Sachsenhausen, and supply the inmates, the slave laborers, with materials to to work themselves to death. So his his workforce was the inmates, and the factories were the concentration camps.
1: So, so your. Uh, Your grandfather played a significant part in in a genocide.
3: Yes, he did. Yes, he did.
1: Uh, When did you discover this?
3: I discovered seven years ago. Would you believe I found him on the internet? I knew by then that my... and I only found out shortly before that my father had actually spent his childhood in Berlin. And I simply got the address from him and... Googled it, and up came a sh- charge sheet from the Nuremberg trials, and it said SS Hauptsturmführer Niemann crimes against humanity, use of slave labour.
1: And did he? What, what was his What was his uh,
3: punishment? Three years, which was quite a lot at that time. By then, the Allies wanted Germany strong to act as a bulwark against the Soviet Union. So they were were quite keen to get people out of prison. Did you meet him? No, he died before I was born.
1: And you grew up in Scotland?
3: I did, yes I did. So my, my dad's sister had married a Scottish soldier and moved to Scotland. And then in the late 1950s, my dad weighing up the economic strength of Scotland and Germany, decided that Scotland was a better bet.
1: Good chap. <laughs> I think he made a mistake. <laughs> no, he didn't. So you did. Did you? Were you able to confront your father and aunt then with what you'd discovered?
3: My my father by then was slipping into dementia. Um, my uncle, who's still alive in Germany, accepted. He was remarkable. I mean, he he and his wife raised two little girls who were orphaned at Chernobyl. So he was the antithesis of a Nazi. So I think to find out more about the father who was quite distant to him was, was painful, but he could accept it as truth.
1: Naomi, you are someone who's known about, this, is fa- this history has been part of your history ever since you were, you were born. What, what does it mean to be a, a descendant of survivors? How has that affected your life?
2: Well, yeah, you say it's been part of my life since I've been born, but consciously it hadn't been part of my life. I didn't know about my mum till about eight years ago, my mum's story. My dad never knew about my mum, because my mum thought my dad's uh, history was so much worse than hers. So she never felt she needed to share that. and in a way, my neither my mother, or even then, my father, really, in inverted commas, burdened me with their history because I feel, in a way, it is a burden. And when I found out about it, I had two choices, either to ignore it or to live with it. But living with it has is what I am doing today. I couldn't ignore it. My conscience wouldn't allow me to ignore that. So. Um, what I try and do is, uh, can't be passive about it, but decided to go around and educate people, particularly our youth. We go to schools, to universities, and that is like a plaster to the wound, especially in the current political climate and in the current climate itself. Where around Europe. Anti-attacks um, against Jews are increasing, even in the States are increasing and interestingly enough for me it's interesting even though it's extremely sad and terrifying as different groups are doing the attacks it's not actually just one group it is extreme groups um it, it is groups of extremists left right extremist jihadists but the ones recently in the states are by black people and they themselves have considered themselves a minority and have been persecuted so It fascinates me what drives people to that. At the same time, I recognise that we are all human and each human, I say, is capable of good and evil. And each human fears and hates different. We're naturally people that are herd, driven by herd instinct and by liking sameness. So I drive all that passion and concern into education.
1: I've been hearing a lot recently about generational trauma and the effect that... Mm. Uh, even having a grandparent, that even if you've been born and raised, lucky enough to be born and raised in, into affluence and and uh, in in a, in a modern society, you can be your your health, your mental health can be affected by uh, being the, the descendant of a survivor. Is that something you, you've seen in your family?
2: Um, I fight against that. It really upsets me, and I also don't want to. I believe it's true, Uh, it has to be, if it's proven in science, and increasingly so, I read as well. But I think it's dangerous to fall into victimhood as such, so I don't want to, I would fight um, depression or victimhood through it and try and surmount it. But um, I'm sure there is something, even my whole passion about the subject isn't quite natural, if you will. I call it passion, my family call it an obsession. Um, So yes, I'm sure we are affected by by it, undoubtedly.
1: It sounds to me like your dad um, was a fighter as well. He didn't want to Mm. let his past define him. Can you tell me more about how he lived his life?
2: Yes, I can, although I was 12 when he died. um, But my direct knowledge of my father, first and foremost, is that he was a very loving father um, and um, a fun father. Even though he was an older father, he talked our talk. And he's somebody, I'm the eldest of three kids whom we miss desperately till to this day, even though I'm a grandma today. Um, I still miss uh, my father very much. Um, And as loving as he was as a father, and I'm not making a a hero of, of him, I'm sure he was extremely human, he was very kind to in his professional life as a dentist and also in his community. For example, as a dentist on the chair, we adopted um, a Catholic grandmother. Uh, so how do we adopt a Catholic grandmother? She was his patient, which isn't strictly very kosher, and I'm sure he'd get struck off today. Made conversation with her, found out that she had no husband, no family, and she became our family. And it enriched our family. I don't know where she was in the war. I don't know where her husband was in the v- war. Vaguely, they said, uh, she said, told my mom asked recently she, he was in Russia. I don't know how true that is or not. Um, But the fact is that my father took her on face value. My father treated the Germans as his patients. And I never, growing up in Munich and Germany, I didn't understand any animosity towards the Germans. That was never expressed by my family, which I think it's remarkable. The way I was brought up was more that I should not make myself, um, in German you say, I shouldn't make myself remarkable. So I should sort of hide and shrink within, and I've done that in Germany as a child, and I took that over when I came to Manchester at the age of 13 as well. I always hid, and I would never really, um, how do you say, come out with that I'm Jewish if around Christmas. um, Whilst I was working in the hospital, people say, are you ready for Christmas? I'd say nearly, and I'd say, well, I'm not lying because I'm also buying Christmas presents for people. But I would never come out that, you know, I'm Jewish and I don't really celebrate Christmas.
1: You were a mature adult when you found out, pretty mature I guess, Oh yes. found out uh, this pretty shocking news. Did it affect your life? Are you a different person? Yeah,
3: I think I am. I mean immediately when I discovered it, it would be fair to say I was paranoid. Because at that point I thought, I'm nearly 50 years old, what else is hidden? You know, what are the other family secrets? What else is being concealed? and then I think I gained a sense of perspective. My wife helped a lot, because as I was, as I was researching my, my grandfather's story um, leading to, to writing a book, she said, stay level. Doesn't matter about your emotions, try and be as objective as you can in following this story through. And I can see, I can see in retrospect just how warped my dad and his siblings were by carrying that kind of knowledge. I mean, my father and his sister until the day they died were, were anti-Semitic. They were they were driven by resentment. They believed in the end that and it's it's impossible for anyone else to imagine that, but they believe in the end that the Jews won. So my dad could say. Yes, yeah, six million people died, I accept that, but they got our house in Berlin. And at the same time, my dad could be friends with with a Jewish colleague at work.
1: Is there a little tiny part of you that feels responsible? And i say this is who my great grandpa was a general at the Battle of Somme, and I've met survivors who uh, who suffered appalling care, who's descendants of survivors. Uh, people who suffered appalling casualties on his command and part of me wants to apologize. I mean you'll say it's Noemi, now How do you because it's not your fault, but do you, is there a part of you that
3: <laughs> I think for, for, for several years? I did feel responsible, but I think since since I've been speaking with Noemi I don't feel any sense of personal responsibility anymore in fact quite the opposite I've, I feel completely empowered Um, and all credit to Noemi, it was Noemi that came to me and said I think we should speak together and to see that the response of of people in the audience, you know Holocaust survivors will come up and they'll hug me, they'll shake my hand, it's as if they can see that that their light is going out but that quest for truth is being carried on not just by their descendants, but by the descendants of perpetrators, and and I think it's a it's a wonderful feeling for me to think that the people who had been so abused feel that 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 little me can do something to to give them a, a legacy of hope.
1: Are Are you glad that when you found out you didn't just stick it and repress it, and instead bathe in it, wrote a whole book, found out everything you could about it. Has that been an important process?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm a writer anyway, so anything I find out, I have to write down. But I, I did feel like I, I had the choice to see nothing, but I felt impelled to, to write it down, to, to try and understand why it had been hidden and what had been hidden. And then to follow up to see, what can I do about this? Hi, I'm Matt Lewis,
4: historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.
0: As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Well, let's deal with the first the biography of your grandfather first. I mean, what... Did you come away sympathetic? Was he just a young kid in the wrong place, at the wrong time, impressionable? Or, or do you think he was a, do you think there was evil there?
3: I don't think he was inherently evil, but I think he was happy to do evil things. In the belief or the self, self-deception that he was doing what was best for his country. Um, it was interesting because this morning we were speaking to, uh, in the, to the civil servants civil service and one of the points i made to them was that he may well have felt that he was a servant of the government and so everything he did was legitimized by the state i i don't feel particular sympathy for him he was he was 37 years old when he joined the nazi party he was 42 when he became a member of the SS. He spent 10 years working for the SS. He went to all the concentration camps on a very regular basis and saw exactly what was going on. And indeed, when his trial came in 1947, the judge said repeatedly, you must have known what was going on, but you continued in your job.
1: And do, we, do you hear his voice anywhere? Do you, do, is it either via your father or, I mean, do, did, does he describe what it was like doing that job, being in those camps? M-
3: my dad didn't know exactly what his dad was doing and and I suspect didn't want to know.
1: So it's difficult for you to connect with your grandfather in terms yes, of what he was Yes, it knows. is. Yeah. Yes,
3: it is. All I know from my father is that he said his his father was a disappointed man at the end of the war. But I don't think he was disappointed because he felt that he'd misbehaved. I think his disappointment came from the end of a dream. Perhaps he felt that that Hitler had done the wrong things. But his was a very, very narrow focus that that sidestepped his own personal responsibility.
1: Noemi, what about your investigations into your your father? Um, Can you tell me more about his war, his experiences?
2: In the war itself, you mean? Um, well, he was uh, picked up in March 41 to go to the first uh, labour camp, Grunheide. There he was actually reunited with his father, um, which helped him a little bit, although they worried about the mother and siblings at home. He managed, actually, to get his father back home Um, through bribery and being able to write. He wrote love letters for someone and uh, that was part of the deal and got my grandfather back home. But home by then wasn't home like they'd known. Home was um, ghetto and, uh, you know, all the rights taken away, living with multiple families, living in sickness, not having food, not having money. So home wasn't this idealistic home anymore and then he went to six further camps he went through death marches i can read some excerpts because i always say my father says it so much better than i can say it and when i paraphrase it i kill it cattle wagons and he went on from grünheide to markstadt um to flossenburg großrosen fünf teichen leonberg and then was uh, liberated near mühldorf at the tutzinger lake and that was by the americans and uh, you know, to us, liberation, freedom, we imagine happiness and boisterousness, but there was huge emptiness. They had gone through an unbelievable trauma, and even that word isn't strong enough, that term. And uh, they had nothing to go back to our home to. Um, how,
1: how did his family fared?
2: So, one sister survived, and she moved to America. He didn't know that immediately after the war. He found her months later. And the other two siblings, a sister whose name I carried she was 13, and a brother, 8. They were murdered together with his parents in Auschwitz in August 1943, my father found out.
1: Um, well, read, can you read the extracts?
2: Yes, I'd like to. I will start by uh, reading an extract from the, one of the marches my father was on. How does a person feel? When he sees his companion being shot, the moment he stops walking and realises he can barely walk himself. Of course, at first he carries on. He wants to live. He reaches for his companion's hand to support himself. But the companion is at the end of his strength and he pushes the hand away. He won't support the laggard. The weak one is left behind. But that one must see for oneself the lifeless face the flickering eyes of a person about to confront his fate, the bullet strikes his neighbor, and soon he will also be struck. Who can say what such a person experiences whilst walking the final steps of his life? Who can describe what he feels and suffers in these moments? And what did I myself experience on this day? As chosen inmate, I had to carry the bread sack for the capo, and the last one in line I had to march next to him and the SS man. The SS man shot all who stopped and the capo had to record their concentration camp numbers. I looked into the barrel of the gun before the bullet struck the neck of the tottering person, looked at the thin stream of blood that ran slowly as life departed the body. I observed the SS man and saw how he ate with appetite his carefully prepared open sandwich whilst continuing to walk despite his bloody deed. In the nearby fields there were farmers sowing and at one of the houses at the roadside a woman was watering her flowers. In this moment, a bullet pierced the head of a struggler. A small stream of blood ran down the temple. And all that happened in the midst of built-up fields and lovingly tended flower gardens. Are we still living in this world? Or was this all a nasty, unending nightmare? How was it possible that people within 50 metres were quietly going to work whilst, in their midst, exhausted, defenceless people were being shot. And this is also whilst my father is is marching just after having left also the cattle wagons. We marched on hard-packed snow. The peace and quiet of Sunday lay gently over the little town as we marched through. Our march became more and more arduous because we had to go up an incline. We were wretched, despairing figures as we struggled to drag ourselves along the white-covered streets. Suddenly, the loud noise of church bells rang in our ears. Before us lay the church proclaiming Sunday. Although we retained only a pitiful glimmer of life and hope, the chimes of the bells touched something barely alive in each of us. Did this signify anything? Had the priest rung the bells on this peaceful Sunday morning to call together the good citizens of this small town to protest against inhumanity and indignity in general, and this awful procession of corpses in particular, we really wanted to believe, to hope that the world was at last alerted from its indifference and had eyes to see this dreadful drama as it passed before them, the martyrdom, torture and death of helpless people. Could they not see, hear, and feel that in the face of this unfathomable mass murder they could not and should not remain any longer silent?
1: Well, that's very resonant, isn't it? Because that could be all periods and all places. And, uh, exactly. We all turn the other. We all look the other way. What's the last quote? The
2: last one was for liber- how he, they felt upon liberation. Okay,
1: let's hear that. 75 years ago this yes. spring.
2: Exactly. Everything we touched was freezing. The barrel of the guns we embraced, the clear frosty night, even those people we met on the morning of our freedom. Now we were free, but what remained of our past? Our homes had been destroyed, our families annihilated. We were solitary islands in a freezing, foreign world. These first days were strange. Our minds were numb, as if we had been intoxicated by our freedom. We could go wherever we wanted, could do whatever we wanted, but we always encountered dismissive, uncomprehending faces. The world could not or did not want to understand our pain. Had these people been so hardened by their own suffering that the tragedies of others was an unbearable burden, a burden they were unwilling to bear, regardless of circumstances.
1: Naomi, why... Why, why tour the country with Derek? Why, why do the double act? Why not just talk about your father's experiences on your own?
2: Because I think it gives people a much broader understanding of humanity that ordinary people are capable of doing extraordinary things. We might think of Hitler as somebody extraordinary, but we're all human. We are basically all the same with different abilities and inabilities. We have very much in common. And of course our uniqueness is our difference, but we really belong to one race, and that's the human race. And coming from two different perspectives and joining together is an extremely powerful experience, both for Derek and myself, and equally for the audience.
1: When you meet people like Derek, do you ever think, you know, I I blame you for what your forebears have done? Is it easy to separate the two?
2: Yes, it is easy, particularly because Derek didn't meet his grandfather. And Derek came to it by accident of birth. Like, I'm Jewish by accident of birth. Actually, I find it extremely easy. It's not my fault that I'm Jewish. I was born to it, you know, uh, and you're lucky. And if, if you watch whatever you're born to, that's part of the stars or God or whatever you believe in. So, totally not. On the contrary, I applaud Derek, and it makes my talk much more powerful. When Derek actually says, and that's his family, it must hurt Derek. It's not easy to say what his ancestors have done is actually wrong. That's that's courage.
1: You two uh, are both uh, are both willing and keen to talk about this history, this very personal history. What? How do you want your? How do you want? How should generations, the next generations, the ones after that, the ones after that you mentioned, you have grandchildren. Do do you want them? to be as engaged with this history? Or do you want them somehow to be able just to move beyond it and not feel that there's this giant tragedy, uh, evil lurking in their past? Start with
2: you, I'd like, of course I'd want them to move way beyond it. Um, I just want them to be what in Yiddish you call good mensch, a good mensch, be a good person, be a decent person. And that's what I want for all of humanity. I certainly don't want them to be burdened with that. Nor do I believe I can tell, let alone grandchildren, children, what to do. I wasn't told what to do. I think it's really unhealthy to do that. So, no, I don't. And, you know, don't, don't do as I say, do as I do. So if they can learn from me by example, the good things that I do, because I'm very human, that would be great. Okay, so what about
3: you? I think for me, I, I see this as... as one of a number of genocides but one that I think British people can relate to more than, say, for example, Rwanda um, or Srebrenica. You know, this this is one where there was a, a so-called stable, strong country that was corrupted. And so I, I feel that there are, there are very useful and pertinent lessons for for, for younger generations from this. And I think particularly um, my grandfather was was probably not exceptional he was he was mediocre, he was unimaginative, and he led himself to believe that what he was doing was was the right thing so he 's not an ogre; he is if you like every man um, and i I want younger people to to appreciate that it's important to to challenge things, small things, while it's still safe to do so. And not to take against people just because they come from a different background or a different religion. But, um, I mean, Noemi talks about the Nazis killing kindness. And that's really fundamental to, to what we do together. We want people to, to look at us and recognise that two people from different backgrounds have come together in the interests of of kindness and understanding.
1: Well, thank you both very much indeed. Uh, we got you got two
3: books: *Announcing the
1: Family* by you, Derek, and *The Long Night: A True Story* by you, Nomi. Uh, it's 75 years since uh, the liberation of Auschwitz. Since uh, is this. This must be a, a really important year for you guys. You'll be talking to a lot of people, I guess.
3: A lot of people, yeah. Yeah, we are. Um, both here and then in June we have a big conference in Toronto called Liberation 75, and that's drawing people from North America, from, from Israel, from who knows where.
1: Naomi, do you worry that after the 75th anniversary there's a danger that people will move on and forget?
2: I think there's all. I think beyond the seventy-fifth anniversary, as our survivors are getting older and fewer, and the first-hand witnesses are actually dying, then I think people will forget. And I think people have already forgotten. The current climate shows that people have forgotten what it was like in the Second World War and before this behaviour. And things are revving up. I mean, it's a simplistic view. I'm sure it's always multidimensional, uh, economy and all sorts. But um, yeah, we have to be vigilant. And like Derek says, I'll end with Derek's words, if I may. While we can make choices, make good, safe and wise choices.
1: Well, thank you. I'm glad you made the choice to come on the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough weather, there, law of the jungle out there. And uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you.
0: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all.